Our loving Father, we commit our time to you and I ask, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, refresh us, encourage us, and may our faith be strengthened by the nourishment of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you were here last time I was with you uh, a few weeks ago, you might recall that we began meditating on Paul's sense of his newfound identity in Christ. And we saw that he doesn't think of that identity so much as a static, momentary thing, but as a more like a movement, a movement that conforms to the very movement, the way of Jesus Christ himself. So that rather than seeing himself according to the old way of Adam, a movement of life that gives way to death, to be defined by the way of Christ is to be defined by the exact reversal of that movement, a movement of death giving way to life. What does it mean to know Christ, as he puts it in verse 10 of chapter 3 in this letter? What does it mean to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection? What does it mean to press on to the goal? to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Paul says, it is to participate in his sufferings, to become like him in his death, and then somehow in being conformed to his death to attain the resurrection from the dead. Last time, taking what Paul says in these couple of verses of Philippians chapter 3 as our cue, we spend some time meditating on the way of Christ himself. It is a way that Jesus himself memorably likens to the falling of a seed from a plant into the ground. For unless a grain of wheat falls down to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That is the way of Christ, the way of the cross, a death giving way to an indestructible life. And Paul says, whatever else it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it means this, to be conformed to that way. No longer the way of Adam, but the way of Christ, the way of the cross. And this morning, I just want to spend our time meditating on what that might mean for us. What does it mean to be conformed to the way of the cross? I think it's quite easy to illustrate what Paul thought it meant, at least in terms of his own ministry. It's perhaps most vividly transparent in the way that he describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians. He starts that letter, you'll remember, by telling the Corinthians that he wants to share with them comfort that he has received from God, the God of all comfort. But how can he do that? Well, it's because the sufferings of Christ, which poured down over Christ, like an anointing oil, had overflowed onto the apostle himself, who, as a result, also needed to taste the comfort of God. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, we want to comfort you with the comfort that we have received in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, it's only because he's shared in Christ's sufferings, Paul thinks, that he's able to minister God's comfort to the Corinthians in their troubles. Indeed, 
it's as if, as he puts it a little later in chapter 4 of that letter, rattling off all of his afflictions as an apostle, hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. It's as if, he says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. It's like I've been poured into the mould of the cross, Paul says, so that Christ's resurrection life might be revealed. And it's not only in his own mortal body that Christ's resurrection then begins to take shape. There's a sense in which that resurrection life spills over into the lives of those he serves. So then he says, death is at work in us. That death, Christ's death, but life is at work in you. His life. Well, then towards the end of that letter, there are the famous words of Jesus himself as Paul longed for that thorn, that Achilles heel, that messenger of Satan, whatever it was, to be taken away. No, don't you see, Paul? My power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why, for Christ's sake, Paul says, I delight in weakness, in insults in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so he can say to the Corinthians, it's only as we are weak in him, not strong, not impressive, not heroic, not powerful, not wise, but the opposite of all of that, but weak in him and with him, that by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. So in Paul's mind, his own ministry eloquently illustrates a conformity to the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And it's because of that conformity that he sees his own ministry brimming over with resurrection, life and power, only because it is first poured into the mould of the cross. But that's Paul. What about us? What does the way of the cross look like for us? What does it mean for us, as Paul puts it in Philippians 3, to participate in, to have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, to be conformed to his death? When we hear this, I think it troubles us a bit. It's one thing to see how Paul understood his own ministry that way, but I suspect we still struggle to understand what on earth it could possibly mean especially with reference to ourselves. How could it ever possibly be that I should participate in the sufferings of Christ? I, th I thought that Christ's suffering was unique, sui generis, one of a kind, unrepeatable, irreplicable. The death he died, Paul says in Romans 6, he died to sin once for all. He died once, he suffered once. Why? To put an end to sin. My sin, not his. And now he lives to God. What suffering of his could there possibly be left to participate in? I mean, sure, we've got a, all got our own suffering. We are, after all, when the clothing of youth, of good looks, of intelligence, of wealth and privilege and opportunity, of health, happy families, respectable children, when all of that is stripped off what's left, but poor, bare-forked animals, naked wretches that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. To quote mad King Lear in a moment of penetrating lucidity. 
Man is born to trouble, Eliphaz once said to Job, as surely as the sparks fly upward. And here Paul complains about his own weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and difficulties. But they're his sufferings, aren't they? Not Christ's. In what sense can they really participate in Christ's sufferings? Anyway, someone might well say back, say back to Paul, you know, this sob story about weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions, yada, yada, I'll give it a rest, Paul. You know, don't worry, I've got them too. Bullied as a child, crippled by chronic ill health, unappreciated in the workplace, now unemployed and struggling to make ends meet. I suffer too. I don't have to be a Christian to be persecuted. I only have to belong to a racial minority. I don't have to be a Christian to be cancelled. I only need to say something unpopular on Twitter. But that's my suffering. It's not Paul's suffering. He's got his own, and it's certainly not Christ's suffering. No, that's just life. It's just the way of Adam, the way of life giving way to death. Dust we are, and to dust, therefore we must return. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, hang on a minute. When Paul talks about his own hardships, he's not talking about just any old suffering, but he's referring to a particular kind of suffering. Surely it's suffering that's specifically targeted at his Christian identity. More than that, it's targeted at the fact that he does specifically Christian kinds of things. More than that, perhaps, especially, it's because he's always sticking his neck out as a Christian and always blurting out stuff, not just of the general sort that's going to get you cancelled on Twitter, but the most unpopular thing of all, this message of the cross, this message that's almost exquisitely designed to cause offence, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. That's the suffering he's talking about, surely. Not any old suffering, but suffering that's of a specifically Christian kind that results from a specifically Christian kind of activity. And, of course, who will deny that? When Paul talks about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians, that's exactly what he has in mind. And so maybe he means what I've got to do if I'm going to participate in Christ's sufferings is that I've got to go looking for a particular kind of suffering. Well, what I've got to do is to get really busy doing a particular kind of Christian stuff, and that'll really bring it on. If I just get a little more obnoxious for Jesus, then I'll share in his sufferings. Is that what he means? Get cracking on some heroic, masochistic quest for a particular kind of Christian suffering, because all your other suffering doesn't really count? I have a friend who was a missionary and he and his wife had been passionate for a long time about reaching a particular unreached people group. And if there was ever a couple who were literally built to be missionaries in some remote location, ministering to people that no one knew existed, learning a language no Westerner had ever learned, that was this couple. Hardy, adaptable, whizzers at languages, and most importantly, desperate for people to come to know Jesus. The great missionary to India, Henry Martin, once said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. Well, that's my friend too. 
But soon into their first term on the field, it became painfully apparent that family circumstances would need to bring them home and it would make them impossible for them to return any time soon, if ever. Now, the agony, disappointment, grief that they have felt and continue to feel is something that I can't even begin to imagine. Now, for the short time that they were on the field, they weren't particular targets of persecution as missionaries. I mean, they, yes, they had to be careful, and yes, they certainly could have been, but that's not the kind of suffering they've had to endure and continue to carry around. So what are we going to say to that couple? Your suffering doesn't count because it wasn't explicitly persecution for being a Christian. I've sometimes heard it said in relation to a letter like 1 Peter, well, you know, the suffering that Peter talks about is really only persecution for being a Christian, for preaching the gospel, and therefore it's not really something that can be applied to other kinds of suffering that we all might experience. I've got to say, I've always found that a pretty glib sort of sentiment, parsimonious, stingy even. You mean to say one Peter has nothing to say to that missionary couple? One Peter has nothing to say to the celibate single person who has desperately chosen to restrain and mortify their sexual desires? One Peter has nothing to say to the person laden down with anxieties that are constantly bringing them to the brink of despair and yet patiently groans for the Lord's comfort and deliverance. One Peter has nothing to say to the couple grieving their childlessness and yet who turned that grief over to the Lord and trusting his providential goodness. How glib. A letter like 1 Peter isn't urging us to go looking for a particular kind of suffering or else intended to make us feel guilty because our suffering isn't the right sort. No, to share in the sufferings of Christ, I don't think has anything to do with pursuing a particular kind of suffering or even a particular kind of activity that will induce a particular kind of suffering. See, what was it that made Christ's suffering unique? From one vantage point, you could look at Christ and simply see the way of Adam, the way of us all. He was born, he did this that and the other, and then he died. From dust he came, and to dust he returned, just like us. And to many, that's all Christ is, just another Adam. So what was it then that made his suffering unique? Unique in a way that put the way of Adam into reverse. Was it that he actively and heroically pursued a particular kind of suffering? Was it even that he heroically pursued a particular kind of activity that would bring on a particular kind of suffering, as if to say that the suffering he endured was an end in itself? No, indeed, I think everything the Bible tells us suggests that Jesus only ever recoiled in horror at the suffering that he would endure. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, we're told, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Take this cup from me, 
he prayed in unimaginable anguish, surely not just once, but countless times. No, Jesus' suffering was never an end in itself to be pursued through some Promethean act of heroism. Part of the unimaginable grief that Jesus bore was the grief of having to bear it at all. So what made it unique? Why did it reverse the way of Adam? It was simply his obedience. His obedience. Yet not my will, but yours be done, he cried. Oh yes, it was obedience to a very particular call, a call to bear the way of Adam, to bear its grief, its suffering, its curse, to take that all upon himself. But it's his obedience to that call that put it all in reverse. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. No, I said, here I am. I have come to do your will, my God. And by that will, Hebrews says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. It was his obedience that made his suffering unique, pure, unhesitating, unqualified, unreserved, obedience unto death, even death upon a cross, Paul says, making that death unique in a way that God could not but highly exalt him and give him the name that is above every name. So how do we share in the sufferings of Christ? Not by replicating his suffering, that's impossible. Not even by trying to approximate his suffering or perhaps trying to approximate the suffering of his apostle. No, Christ's suffering is unique, just as Paul's is, just as our own is and will be. Oh, to be sure, there is a family resemblance in its echo of the old way of Adam down to the grave. But ultimately, whatever suffering I face in this world is my own, not yours, and certainly not Christ's. So how do we share in the sufferings of Christ? Paul in Philippians 3, I think, gives us a clue. He says, verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this, this conformity to the way of Christ or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There, I suggest, Paul is simply giving voice to the natural register of Christian faith. That very faith of which Jesus Christ himself is, as Hebrews puts it, the pioneer and perfecter. For if it's the natural register of Christian faith to persevere, to press on in obedience 
to the God who has called us heavenward. There is one, a pioneer, who has gone before us to clear the way. And it is in him, Paul says, and in the power of the great reversal of death that is his resurrection that we have been called. But like our pioneer, we too need to learn the art of obedience through suffering. And sometimes obedience to that heavenly call will take us to hard places, as it did for Paul. Did Paul have a harder life because he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? Who could deny that? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, Jesus said to Ananias. Will we have a harder life if we heed the call to preach the gospel? Quite probably, yes. But living a harder life for Jesus is not the point. Heeding the call is. And it's not heeding the call to do this or that activity so much as a call to surrender our whole lives and wills to him. But yes, sometimes learning obedience will take us to hard places and it may well be persecution as it is for many. But it needn't be as dramatic as that. It may simply be a heightened sensitivity to the grievousness, to the burden, to the scandal of sin in the world, in the church, in our own lives. I think of that moment when the glory of God departed the temple in Ezekiel 8 and 9 and and Ezekiel is told by God to put a mark on those who grieve and lament over all the abominations that have been committed in the city. Put a mark on them and spare them. Yes, sometimes obedience takes us to hard places, but sometimes it's in the midst of hard places. Hard places that defy any good explanation, they're just hard. Sometimes it's in those places that we are to learn the art of obedience. In the disappointment of having even the best intention plans to serve God cut short for whatever reason. In the temptations and longings of singleness, of marriage, of youth, of middle age, of old age. Amidst the thankless burdens of study, of parenting, of pastoral ministry, demanding and difficult people, in the loneliness of depression and chronic ill health. It's the art of learning obedience through suffering to which we are called. And that, I suggest, is how we are conformed to Christ's death. Conformity that at the same time cannot but manifest the outworking of his resurrection power in our mortal bodies, breaking into those bodies and then brimming over into the lives of those around us. So consider it pure joy, James writes, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. For blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Our loving Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus.
pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now who sits at your right hand, interceding for us on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for the way in which his resurrection power has claimed our lives and now calls us to follow in his steps, calls us to learn the art of surrendering our wills to him in the midst of suffering, just as it did for Paul and just as it will for each one of us in whatever trials we may face. Please, Father, give us the grace and the strength by the power of the risen Son to persevere and as a result to be conformed to the likeness of his death, to have that fellowship in his sufferings and then at last to attain the resurrection from the dead. We pray in his name.